0: My argument is less against birthright and more that we have an educational crisis. People are hungry for it. People want Jewish education. So help them. I, I don't understand why that's so, why is that complicated? If everything's in translation, then you're a Unitarian.
1: From Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gates, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Ocoini. On What Gives? We explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community at large. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing our stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. In this episode, we'll hear from Roflka Frisell. She is a journalist, playwright, and cultural critic whose work on new Yiddish culture, feminism, and contemporary Jewish life has appeared in Aharetz, The Jewish Week, The Forward, Hey Alma and Lilith, and many other places. Her column in Tablet Magazine, called Ruffles Golden City, celebrates Yiddish and Ashkenazi life in all its incarnations. I wanted to have Rochelle on the podcast because she has been a very sharp critic of Jewish communal institutions and priorities. She brings valuable insights about how the Jewish establishment approaches Jewish life, Jewish literacy, about how American and Jewish identities interact, and about the Jewish continuity discourse as a whole. Some of her critiques I agree with. Uh, Other things I strongly disagree with. But all of her perspectives are extremely valuable contribution to the Jewish conversation. So take a listen. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Good (laughs) Good work. We're starting in Yiddish because for you, Yiddish plays a very important role. Yes. are going to talk a little bit about that?
0: Um, Sure, I can talk about that. What Yiddish gave me was a perspective that secular and religious are kind of a false binary. For me, it's not about rejecting religion because you can't, because Ashkenazi Jewish life presents me with an organic whole. I took a remedial Hebrew class last winter, just in my neighborhood, and I thought it was the appropriate level for me and i went and i realized that even you know with people who people in my neighborhood who go to shul all the time and you know are more immersed in hebrew than i am i knew the most hebrew of anyone because i study yiddish right and um that's not an accident that you can't take one and reject the other um, I know so much more about the liturgical and ritual aspects of Jewish life, and they're part of my life. It, they're not part of my life in the way that American Jews think, well, okay, you know, uh, I go to synagogue at this time and I keep you know five million sets of dishes and all this stuff. I don't. I mean let's let's be real. <laughs> I don't I don't do any of that, but I have a very rich mixed set of friends. I live in a very diverse, very richly Jewish neighborhood. Maybe some people will think this is kind of silly, but to me it's very important that I'm in proximity to all those things and they inform my life in very real ways. In the modern world, everybody has a choice and you know, lots of people in the Jewish world today are grappling with that, that we live in this world of choice and that's true. And I think that there will always be people who are just constitutionally not comfortable with observance, with going to synagogue, with sitting for a long time, with following rules, all those things. And there will always be people who are constitutionally really into it. (laughs) So I'm one of the first category that I just am not comfortable with those kind of things. I enjoy being able to access them when I want to, but it's not for me. And I also, I went to Brandeis with so many people who attended Brandeis specifically for the purpose of converting to Judaism. There are a lot of people out there who really love traditional Jewish life. They love the rules. They love the interpretation. And that's great. And I think that we should embrace that and not see Jewish life as having to be one way that's good, that you're being good, and one way that you're being bad. Rather there's many ways of doing it, and over your one person's life, you may go from one point to the other, in either direction.
1: We seem to have a common enemy, you and I, in the use, or misuse, rather, of the word identity. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the paradigm of Jewish identity. As I just, can you just talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So identity is one of those things that really certainly shaped my life and who I came to be in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's something through my research on the concept of identity that I came to understand, you know, why I had the education that I had. And the way I see it is that at a certain point, you know, what was sort of the most useful for the greatest part of American Jews in terms of transmission was to transmit a feeling and an attachment to Judaism and a sense that you should, you know, keep yourself somewhat apart um but that also you're an american so they had to come up with this way to balance a feeling of identification with a feeling of you know positive assimilation that we are american jews and the american part is really important so identity is the um sort of you know post it flag of that project we put all of that that ambivalence into this very tidy thing that we call identity, and it kind of works um, until it doesn't. Until it doesn't, and I would say I'm a I'm a product of that. That what I learned at Hebrew school, where I, I went to temple, um, was you know I'm Jewish. And that, uh, you know, unfortunately, they used very emotional pedagogical tools, like showing us really gruesome images from the Holocaust. My Hebrew school teacher was a Holocaust survivor, um, one of the very few Holocaust survivors I knew growing up. And, you know, we certainly, she transmitted (laughs) essential lessons to us, which was, you know, fear, terror, horror. Um, And, uh, you know, Fear, terror, and horror are very effective pedagogical tools. In the short term. In the short term, but they don't give you much to transmit or to work with.
1: They don't give depth and meaning to your life.
0: They give you a sense of fear and of difference and anxiety. And yes, of, you know, it is very important that all Jewish people have an understa- a deep understanding of Jewish history, especially recent Jewish history. I'm, you know, I wouldn't say we shouldn't. But the way history is used to build identity and to scare young people into, you know, marrying other Jews, for example, because, you know, you can't let Hitler win, I yeah. think is really um,
1: short-sighted. So, so, so to go back to this notion of identity, I mean, I think that identity became this catch-all idea to, to sort of reassure people that you can be Jewish yeah. without actually doing anything Jewish. Yeah. You're not observant, that's fine. You don't speak any Jewish language like Hebrew or Yiddish. You don't consume or produce any Jewish culture, that's fine too. too, Because you have a Jewish identity, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. And that might have served us when the biggest objective of the Jewish community was to integrate into modern American life. But it may not be enough now.
0: I don't even think it was enough for the last 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, right. but yeah, it's, uh, I think we're definitely seeing now the shortcomings and we're sort of starting to put that together
1: for sure. I mean, and part of, part of the problem I think was, a, or not a problem, part of the reality was that precisely outside of the Holocaust and with the, you know, hardship of the set of Israel in this formative year, there was a, there was a, there was a premium on unity and the Jewish people being... A single community
0: yes absolutely
1: now not defining what judaism means and using turn instead a, a a vague term like identity helps you maintain unity because yes. you're not excluding anybody you're not define i mean you, you're not defining what jewish identity is so anybody can come in but the moment you give content the moment you give depth yeah you are taking a stand and you may be excluding some people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point that, and this is certainly something that I grew up with as a person who, you know, I learned standard modern Hebrew Havara pronunciation from a Holocaust survivor from Poland, who I can tell you this was not the natural way she spoke Hebrew. Um, So there was a premium on giving the appearance of a unified Jewish culture and Jewish life. And that was the message I absorbed. I grew up in an English speaking home on Long Island. And Yiddish just wasn't really a thing I was aware of. And um, I guess the lucky thing is that when I was in high school, I sort of caught um, the tail end of the Klezmer revival. B- basically, what happened was that there was a, a couple Klezmer CDs in the independent bookstore near our house, and somehow one or two of them made their way to our house. I didn't buy them, but I think my dad bought them, and I heard them, and it just kind of blew my mind when I heard this music. And the words were in Yiddish. All of a sudden, I thought, "Oh my God!" Like the couple words that my parents had scattered around, I realized were connected to this big, fat, juicy, exciting thing that nobody had ever told me about, but apparently belonged to me.
1: And we don't talk about here <laughs> beyond the folkloric yeah. of a few Yiddish words that made it into English, like yeah. schlep or kibitz. Or... Yeah,
0: yeah. If, if there was one message that was given, that was certainly it, that Jewish is one thing. And what we're seeing today especially is the backlash against that as people are starting to find a voice and say, Jewish is many things.
1: Are we making the problem worse by creating communal programs that are based on low entry barriers? If you think, you know, the the most popular programs now in the Jewish community, Birthright and Moshe House, and I mean, they're all great programs, but they're based on having a very low Mm -hmm. entry barrier. Mm -hmm. In other words, their success is due to the fact that precisely they don't define the content of Jewish identity.
0: Well, no, I would disagree with that. I would say that there is, for birthright, there certainly is a content, which is that Zionism and a certain kind of Zionism is identical with being Jewish today. Um, It, you know perhaps is not articulated that way. But I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a <laughs> political free trip to Israel. Um, so yes, I, I, I've written in many places that I think that birthright is problematic, that so much money is poured into something which is, as you said, has very low barriers to entry, which is good because people go on it. But it also means that the people themselves don't, invest in it. They don't have an investment in it and they're not necessarily getting something out that's meaningful to them because at the end of the day not everybody is going to have their Jewish identity be played through a relationship to Israel.
1: Well, but that they I mean, Bertha is going to argue against that saying people come back energized and where that energy go? is there a choice? For some, it may be a relation with Israel. For some, it may be a commitment to the local community. For some, it may be just a new social group. So I I don't think that's necessarily bad to sort of give people uh, a taste of something or an an injection of motivation uh, that then they can work with it.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, I haven't seen that much research that says that then people are able on their own to dive deeper or that the there's a high rate of people going deeper on their Jewishness. But I would say that my argument is less against birthright and more that we have an educational crisis, that people don't even have access to, you know, being able to read Hebrew letters. You know, let let me say that, you know, I'm on social media a lot, probably too much. And I'm very public about my Yiddishism. And I often have people contacting me and saying, you know, I really wanna learn Yiddish. And as soon as I say, and they say, can can you help me learn it? And I say, okay, great. I said, can you read Olive Base? And a lot of the time, as soon as I say, can you read Olive Base? I don't hear back from them. And I don't, I don't. I ask them not to shame them, but to know, you know, how to help them. And I realized that I can't even assume that there are all these people out there who are hungry for Jewish education, who can even access that.
1: Right. But but then, but then one could argue, and this is not my argument, just saying, like presenting the two sides. Like one could say, listen, there is an educational crisis. Okay. Like people are disaffected. People have low level of content. People don't speak Hebrew. People, you know, all the things that we know. So, what do you do with that? Right? So the people that favor not birth rate as such, but the birth rate approach, they would tell you, listen, we're gonna create a high impact experience that is gonna ignite in people the desire to learn more. Now there seems to be another it's not what you're saying, I'm paraphrasing it a little. Another school that says, no, that's not that doesn't work, it's fleeting, it doesn't, it doesn't create. You have to actually engage people into a long process and use the high-impact experience as a culmination of a process, sort of like the the, the carrot, you know, at the end of the process, rather than putting it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you you wrote something about it that is really interesting, about like, nobody would study for the bar mitzvah if you do the party... (laughs) first, and then they have to study for a year, which is true. But on the other hand, people are not doing that lengthy process anyway. So how do you solve it? Like, I agree with you in an ideal world, people should go to Birthright or forget about any high impact experience after a lengthy process of preparation, but people are not doing that. So what do we do? Oh, well, I mean, it doesn't seem that complicated to me. I
0: mean, first of all, we clearly have, we have a Jewish education tuition crisis. It, Jewish education in this country is so expensive. Tell and, me about it. And people, in it. <laughs> people are screaming about it. So first of all, I mean, you could say, well, those people are already committed. So, you know, they're going to figure it out, which I really don't think is fair, first of all. But also, it seems to me that if you put that money into subsidizing Jewish education, you make it accessible to people. That seems like such a fir- obvious first step, that you have to get people when they're young, and, and people are hungry for it. People want Jewish education. So help them. I, I don't understand why that's so... Why is that complicated? I, You know, I'm
1: not a Jewish philanthropist. I'm not a... Do you, do you have any thoughts on why that that is? Why people find easier to invest in things like birthright. Yes. (laughs) I have a thought. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure I'm not going to like it, but go ahead.
0: Which is, you know, look, there's a reason why the identity project is so important to American Judaism because the winning formula for American Judaism calls for just the right amount of Jewishness, right? And What I found, for example, in questionnaires and studies of Jewish parents in the 60s was that not that parents were worried their kids weren't getting enough Jewish education. They were worried their kids were going to get too much. They were worried their kids were going to come home and say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that?
1: So you're basically saying that we are actually succeeding, meaning we're having (laughs) the community we want to have. We want to have a Judaism that doesn't bother us to integrate and be successful in modern America. Yes, absolutely. And I, that's why we invest in things other than deep and yes. lengthy Jewish learning.
0: There, I don't want to, I know people will criticize me, I don't want to oversimplify because the fact is Jewish education is really expensive and Even if you took all the money that's spent on birthright, it would still not cover, you know, universal Jewish day school. So let me put that out there. Yes, I'm aware of that. But I think that the sort of analysis part of the unarticulated American Jewish ideology is really the most important part, that this is the Judaism we want. Now, do we feel conflicted about it? Yes. Is it complicated? Yes. But why are we here? We're here because of the choices we made.
1: No, in an ideal world, the two approaches don't need to be mutually exclusive. You could invest for those that want that kind of identity. You could have birthright type program for folks that are very happy having that diffuse sense of identity and you could at the same time give people the opportunity of a meaningful Jewish education. I mean, we 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 live in times where the Jewish community is Wealthier, more comfortable, more secure than it ever been, despite the recent, you know, spike in anti-Semitism. We're still, we're still in the best possible time in history to be Jewish in terms of our wealth, power, and capacity to do things.
0: Well, yes, that's true. I and, and I'm always reminded, especially by my friends in Israel, how lucky we are here in the United States, and it's absolutely true. Um, you know, I can't speak to the infinite depths of our philanthropic pockets, because I just don't know. But I would say it's important to look at birthright and the way birthright is designed as a continuation of this American Jewish identity ideology that we've been talking about, that it was designed to be a kind of connection to Jewishness that doesn't ask you too much. Um, It's very passive. You go, you enjoy yourself. You're not expected to learn Hebrew. You're not expected to sign up to any kind of political party. You're not expected to do much except to have a feeling. Okay, if you come back and you have a feeling, that's great. And certainly Michael Steinhardt was very explicit and has been all along that The point of birthright was to increase Jews marrying each other and having Jewish children.
1: Yeah, we're going to get back to the intermarriage question because I think (laughs) think there is... Hi, just a quick explanation from after we recorded this. What we are referring to here is an argument Rochel made in several articles in spring 2019 that, to paraphrase, the Jewish establishment's obsession with preventing intermarriage and promoting Jewish demographic continuity is fundamentally sexist. Okay, back to the interview. I mean, I think that what you say might have been right 10 or 20 years ago, more 20 years ago, but now the, the attitude of the community towards intermarriage is radically different. And I, I don't hear people talking about that as a goal anymore. I haven't. In, in stopping see- intermarriage, you mean? Yeah, as in taking intermarriage as a as a thing to avoid or to mm-hmm. prevent. Mm-hmm. It's actually the other way around. It's if anything, a big thrust in the in the in the philanthropic community, you know, including the funder you just mentioned, is about being welcoming to intermarried families and how to create a so I think the the not marrying out question I think was part of the thing that you were discussing before, that it was a minimum that you could ask from somebody, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter if you eat, you know, bacon every day, as long as you marry somebody Jewish. And now that shifted. Now people say, I don't care what, who you marry, as long as you lead a Jewish life. So, so I think that that, that debate about intermarriage is a little, there's, there's, there's a time lag there. Like mm-hmm. it's not there anymore. I think it depends who you talk to. Although it's interesting
0: to see now with Stephen Cohen being sort of off the scene a little bit, and the way things have played out over the last, I don't know, two years, is it's going to be very interesting down the road. Because I think yes, there's there's going to be more of a dramatic shift. But I do think it depends on who you ask and and whose perspective. Now, i
1: going to tell you that marriage inside the Jewish people is a bad thing. <laughs> I mean yeah, some radicals will tell you we shouldn't <laughs> even have that objective uh, but I don't think that having that objective means that we're obsessed with having Jewish babies and we're we're actually I, I think if anything what what people are talking about is about meaningful engagement more and more mm-hmm. and even the people that invested in birthright I mean they don't talk they they don't mention the term continuity mm-hmm. they don't mention the term at uh, least thoughtful people I mean the the people you know they don't mention the, the term uh, fertility or they, they don't talk about that. They talk about engagement. So let's assume what you say is true about birthright, you know, being sort of superficial point of contact. Can you then capitalize on it? Like birthright is not going anywhere. It's a very successful program. Is there a way of capitalizing on that excitement that doesn't, I agree with you, it doesn't demand you do anything, but it ignites something.
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, personally, I think that the communal focus has to be much, much earlier, that it's just too late to try oh, to get people. Okay, but then. it wasn't
1: early. Like, right. where, where were we hmm So you can't just say, okay, well, you had, it should have been early, so then that's it. No, you still, you still can do stuff.
0: Well, then, I think that, first of all, so we were talking about how American Judaism kind of wraps stuff up, and it was a moment, you know, 50, 60 years ago where we had to invoke this unitary kind of Jewish culture, a global Jewish culture, and, you know, with Israel at its center. And I think that then making your high-impact program focused on Israel makes it more difficult to then complicate or um, go against or or challenge that paradigm in any way. Because I think that, again, a lot of people are hungry for a kind of Jewishness that recognizes who they are. So I would want follow-up, I would want offerings. If people are excited, I would want offerings that can speak to a wide variety of people. In my own life, this awakening I had to Yiddish, right? What I realized was that when I went into official, you know, mainstream Jewish spaces, my own Jewishness didn't exist, right? Like, if my parents at home said, gay yeah. and at Hebrew school there was a poster that said, Layla tov, uh, you know, what did that mean? What? No, seriously, what did that mean? The gap... That 1,000-year European gap was never explained. It didn't exist. The Holocaust existed, but Jewish life there didn't exist. And there's something really, really powerful in a negative way about erasing our domestic, our familial, our personal Jewish histories.
1: So you're you're basically saying, if I may paraphrase, not that I agree, but (laughs) that we are sort of, that there is a, Zionist historiography. A
0: triumphalism.
1: uh, Sorry, a triumphalism that tries to equate diaspora with the Holocaust and therefore erase a thousand years of Ashkenazi Jewish culture and paint it all with the same brush and say it was all suffering and pogroms and persecution because we didn't have a state. Now we have a state. So now it is possible, I guess, to celebrate the regaining of Jewish sovereignty and at the same time celebrating the Jewish culture that existed in the diaspora you know for a thousand years.
0: Well, you know, that depends on who you're looking to. you know, today in Israel, unfortunately you have this sort of revanchist, you know, Jabotinsky style Zionism, which has displaced all other Zionisms, right? Like I would say even if we just taught young people about the wide variety of Zionisms, about uh, right, about uh, the Linke, about Yiddish Zionism, for example, that would be amazing. I think people would be really excited about that, to understand the complexity of Zionist history.
1: Right. But, you know, the, the first Zionist thinkers, the first Zionist artists, I mean, I, I went to the Bialik school, you know, Bialik. Was is the national poet of the Zionist Renaissance? He wrote in Hebrew. He was deeply secular, yet he also wrote in Yiddish, and he wrote uh, Sefer Agada, which is a collection of rabbinic sayings. So he was—he didn't see Zionism necessarily as a rupture, but. As as an opportunity open to really have a more a ritual cultural life a renewal of of Judaism really, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was inscribing classic Zionism too. And today, can you really exclude Israel from Jewish identity? No, of course not. Can you, because I see a lot of efforts now trying to decouple, you know, the the term is decoupling Israel from Israel. Israel is too complicated, so let's try to just...
0: Well, I don't think that's possible. I mean, you you just can't. It's too, Judaism today all over the world is much too intertwined with Zionism. Even if people say they want to decouple, I don't think that poses any kind of actual threat to Zionism. But as you just alluded to with Bialik, for example, Zionism itself and the, you know, the renaissance of Hebrew literature is so rich. And again, you can't expose people to that on a 10-day trip. How many people are, you know, are going to, they, I, as far as I know, they, you know, you don't learn any Hebrew when you're on birthright, you're not asked to learn anything, you know. It's a, it, culturally, it's very low, uh, a very kind of low level of education. Again, without access to the language, it's hard to understand those things and connect with them.
1: Yeah, I I I'm really puzzled by that. Like interestingly enough, the American Jewish community is probably the only major community in history that hasn't created its own Jewish language and or is not proficient in any Jewish language. Yeah. And and how can you have a Jewish conversation without a Jewish language?
0: yeah if everything's in translation, then you're a Unitarian you know
1: <laughs> right
0: it's uh it's a problem and the and as I often say, you know American Jews are American, and monolingualism is an American value. You have to understand that identity is an American Jewish ideology. American Judaism, those two parts contain a clash of values, right Those values are always going to be in tension. The identity project endeavored to make us believe and you know we hoped we believed that those values were harmonious right but their intention and monolingualism won is there a way around it well so here's the thing right so you asked well what would you do with people who come back from birthright and are excited and you want to engage them and i said well first of all you have to understand that birthright is as far as i can see I've never done it, but as far as I can see, birthright is an extension of this pr- American Jewish project of identity, right? So it's not asking them to learn Hebrew, it's not asking them to do any of those things. So if you then come back and try to engage them in ways that subvert th- those values, I think that's gonna be problematic. But I would offer to people who come back aren't excited, a variety of ways to engage with their Jewishness, and you have to start with language.
1: Get people into Hebrew classes. Get people. In in that you do agree with Michael Stein, with the importance of Hebrew.
0: Listen, I absolutely think Hebrew is important. I mean,
1: yeah, the, the debate. I remember when I was little, <sighs> there was it was still in the long tail of the debate between Yiddishist and and Hebraists. It's he,
0: Hebrew versus Yiddish is another one of these false binaries, like secular versus religious. That I think it's just. It's not only you know. It's not. It it doesn't apply, but also it really kind of warps the conversation and 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 drains our energy. I I think it's it's silly because as I always say on the first day of Yiddish class, you realize like, oh dang, you know, (laughs) I need to know all these Mishnahic you know sayings in order to read Shalom Aleichem. Okay.
1: (laughs) Uh oh. Yeah. So it's interesting because you you just alluded to something that is that we tend to forget, which is any project of Jewish, of meaningful Jewish uh, education actually educates people to be different, mm-hmm. and the American Jewish project is to say precisely we're not different. We're like everybody else. <coughs> But a little it. more so, yeah no but 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 seriously, like the the idea seems to be we can integrate, we're not this community apart, we're fully integrated, and yet, on the other hand, speaking a different language, having different customs makes you different, yes, and we just don't say that out loud. We're educating people to be different, well, yes, or, or we should educate people to be different, right. <laughs>
0: And every step that we take that kind of goes against that unarticulated ideology of American Jewishness, every step we take is, I think, a little bit uncomfortable. We're constantly having to recalibrate ourselves as Americans, and it's scary, right? If you are educating young people to speak a second language, like, there are politicians who get on TV and say, you shouldn't be speaking a language that's not English in public, right? Like, that's actually become dangerous.
1: You're already going against the grain, placing value in particularism. Yes. In a way. Yes. Which seems to be, you know, I think in in progressive circles, the whole idea of the multicultural idea is that you, you have to empty yourself out of your own particularism to receive the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's still definitely a sense of, you know, universalism as a good thing. And that, you know, you'll find people who say, you know, religion divides us and, you know, we shouldn't be tribalists and whatnot. I think that, you know, in the moment we live in, in the United States, that particularism and cultures are valued or viewed as good if they can be commodified and sold. Which is something that I think about a lot in terms of Yiddish, that, you know, the, the Yiddish world that I came into was so deeply grassroots and everything, you had to do it yourself, you had to search out, you had to create things and and find things. And I I worry a little bit about people who want to sell, who want to discover Yiddish and sell it back. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I'm slightly concerned about it. Once a culture is packaged and sold, it loses, it necessarily loses its, some of its meaning. It has to be emptied of some of its meaning in yeah. order to be packaged.
1: Is there a risk of breaking, actually, another taboo, which is that numbers are important meaning we lost 6 million people we shouldn't lose anybody else and when you start proposing a type of Jewish identity that is more demanding that 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 you know asks you to put more effort to learn a different language you are going to lose people so is that a risk you're willing to take first of all do you agree with that premise <laughs> that you're going to lose people and if yes are you saying, yeah, well, I'd rather lose people but have a more meaningful
0: Um, well, it's a good question. Uh, you know, again, we're in the land and the time of choice where choice controls everything. So you can't we're not forcing anybody to do anything. I do believe that there is a desire on the part of many Americans to give their kids richer Jewish educations and that right now a barrier to that is financial. And I would love, love, love to see more money put into making deep Jewish education available to more people. And I do think that people, many people would take advantage of that. Here's the thing though, I think that for all the surveying and censusing we do, we still don't have a good grasp on what people want. I mean, look, human beings, we often don't know what we want or we're not able to articulate what we want. That goes without saying. But something I've found over the years of reading sociological, contemporary sociological literature is that I'm surprised at what the people who are in charge or the people writing the studies don't ask, what they're not asking the people, what they're not curious about.
1: Give me an example.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, to go back to this fertility issue, often many of these papers were written by men, and they didn't ask questions like, why aren't you having children? What would help you? What would make things easier? You know, things that seem so obvious to me and my generation and people who are younger than me, which is that we're all drowning in debt. Right, We are drowning in debt. We are facing a future that is so different than our parents. And I know so many people, my friends were married, and they have one kid, and they would love to have another kid. And they can't. They can't. I mean, I combed all these papers looking for the one mention of the word daycare. Didn't see it. I mean, just, uh, you
1: know, the United States- There are, to be fair, there are a few federations that are- investing a lot in in daycare and new york city also and and some funders are investing in that but i agree with you not enough
0: we and I, I hate to use this word again but the united states is in a daycare crisis right a crisis and and parents are being driven to the limit it's really really hard and i'm seeing it now in my friends
1: so what you're saying is you want more jews just first of all make it easy for parents to to have them make it affordable for them to have them
0: absolutely like again this is it's not complicated right like if you asked people how could we help you to you know if you wanted to have another kid how could we help you like right that's what people would say
1: and you think you think that's that's a problem with the design of those studies of the surveys Or with the mentality behind them. Yes.
0: And, you know, when people say, oh, why is, why does it matter that, you know, this study was run by men or this panel only has men? Because perspectives matter. And so if a study is written by a man who, you know, comes from a generation where men worked, women raised kids, you know, to generalize, then it might not occur to them.
1: Right. It's not necessarily that they're mean or bad or chauvinistic. It's just they're... Conceptual universe is not not diverse enough.
0: Their perspective is so different, and I would like to see more of an inquiry, more questions about how people are living today, how young people are living today, the the material conditions and the contingencies, right? To understand that.
1: So yeah, and how people. uh, One of the things I ask uh, researchers to do is just go and make an ethnographic study and tell me, don't ask them questions. Observe them with an open mind and tell me what you see. But mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't do ethnographic studies, right? We don't do ethnographic studies in terms of how Jews leave their Judaism. We ask them questions, but we don't really observe and do we.
0: Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And obviously, ethnography is... time consuming and expensive. And I want to put a shout out here to a friend of mine who I met as an undergraduate at Brandeis. And we're still friends to this day, my friend Jennifer Thompson. And she is a sociologist and uh, an expert in Jewish ethics now. And she wrote an ethnography of intermarriage, which is really fabulous. And I really hope um, people in the Jewish leadership will read it. The thing she found studying families where it was Jewish men who had married non-Jewish women is that contrary to a lot of the, to the popular wisdom, the non-Jewish women in the families were the ones who were shaping the Jewishness and were really committed to it. And that was a really important finding. There's a lot more to it. But I think it's such an important point that like, we really need to slow down and talk to people and Observe their lives and find out what their lives are like, and then let that lead the kind of questions we ask, let that lead the programs we design.
1: What are your thoughts about the state? of Jewish arts and culture in today's world first of all is there such a thing
0: <laughs> well from my point of view which is a particulars point of view um, I would say we have been for the last 40 years living in a golden age of Jewish culture of course most of Jewish America doesn't really know about it um, but what's been happening in the Yiddish and klezmer world is nothing short of spectacular and it's speaking of packaging and commodification, it has been packaged and commodified and sold all over the world. It's incredibly popular. It certainly had, I mean, for years, it was incredibly popular in Germany. It's a little bit that wave has passed, but it's still incredibly popular in Western and Eastern Europe
1: and all over the world. Yeah, and, and yet the majority of Jewish cultural creation actually happens in Israel. Like if you think... Books written, music composed—well, just
0: by dint of it being in Hebrew, you mean?
1: Not only. I mean, first of all, that's something produced by Jews in a Jewish context makes it automatically Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that to a certain extent it does. But even in Israel, like the whole, you know, development of Jewish music, you know, music I would eat, you know, following that goes well beyond klezmer. It's sort of new Jewish religious music and pew team and recovering of ancient traditions, uh, ethnic music, somebody like Idan Reichel who mixes, you know, different. And and that, so are we worrying too much about something that is taking place? It's happening in Israel every day.
0: Well, the problem is that as far as I know, American Jews have zero interest or access to what happens in Israel. I mean, personally, I don't engage that much with Israeli culture a little bit. I do a little bit. Um, but because the f- main part of my focus is on Yiddish. So it's that happens mostly in the United States or well, some in Israel. Um, but uh American Jews just don't engage with Israeli culture. Again, there's a language barrier, but also they're just not interested. I mean, I think it would be wonderful if they
1: were. Now, so we're talking about klezmer on the one hand, which is a revival of 19th, early 20th century music. We're talking about Israeli culture. Is there something that you can call unique American Jewish culture that is unique? It's rooted in traditions, it's rooted in, you know, cultural heritage, but it's unique to American Judaism.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I would argue that the Eastern European music that has been developed in the United States, I mean, if you just want to look at the 40 years of Klezmer Revival is very American, because it's been done by American musicians who are bringing in other American idioms, uh, musical idioms. The Klezmer revival itself is a uniquely American phenomenon, and again, like I, I kind of feel like American Jews dismiss it before they even know what it is because it's so many things and it's so deep and it's just so incredible. Um, and we, you know, unfortunately haven't even given it a chance.
1: And if you if you go beyond music, mm-hmm. and you talk about things like literature. Mm. Now what would you make in, in Jewish terms of authors that are Jewish and their thematics have Jewish hints or Jewish Jewish allusions, but are not they don't write about Jewish stuff. They write mm-hmm. about stuff mm-hmm. and their Jewishness comes across.
0: Well, I think it's great. I think literature is great. And obviously, American Jews have <laughs> made an outsized impact on American literature.
1: Um, but, but have they made an impact in Judaism? Uh, you know, I think it
0: depends who you're looking at, who you're asking. Um, is it enough in itself? Mm, I, you know, I'm not sure I would want to diet. it of just American Jewish English language literature. No.
1: If you were advising a young Jewish artist or a young Jewish writer, let's say, that they want to make a difference in Jewish life, what would you advise them to write about? What would you advise? How do you mm. would you advise them to face their craft? Mm.
0: Well, I would say that I would advise them to immerse themselves in a Jewish language first and to experience Jewish literature in a Jewish language and then create in English.
1: You haven't mentioned almost at all, the idea of values, of Jewish values. You mentioned language, you mentioned practice, you mentioned religion, but you didn't mention values. Do you have a quarrel with that term?
0: I I mean, it's definitely a problematic term. I sort of cringe when I see people try to articulate Jewish values. I think it's easier for me to articulate American values. Like I said, you know, monolingualism, for one, (laughs) is an American value. Um... You know, people are uncomfortable with Jewish values because Jewish values necessarily involve setting Jews apart, and they involve judgments about the way life is lived and with whom it's lived.
1: My my problem, quote-unquote, with Jewish values is that virtually anything can be a Jewish value. Like, mention something, I can make it into a Jewish value. People generally, they cherry-pick Yes. You know, some source, you know, some text. Yes.
0: I agree with you. I think that the question of what is a Jewish value is sort of, to me, is not that interesting. I think it's more interesting to lead with texts and lead with history, and people can derive from those things, if they're honestly engaging with language and text and history, then whatever values are in those will be apparent to them. The problem is that doing that
1: work is hard. And you need to be literate to do that work. Yeah. Uh,
0: I I mean, I recognize that my approach, or I'm expecting a lot from people, and I'm a person who is still doing the work and still making up for my own educational gaps. Again, I think we have to recognize and embrace the sort of chaotic world of choice that we live in while still hoping and working to enable people to do as much work as possible, the good work, the work of building Jewish life.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank uh, you, for. Großen Dank. <laughs> Thanks so much to Rochel Kafrisen for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at Rochel K. That's an at sign. R-O-K-H-L-K. And her website is Rochel.com blogspot.com Thanks also to klezmer musician Michael Vinograd for allowing us to use his music for this episode The tracks you heard throughout were from his album Kosher Style which you can find and buy at bandcamp.com We want to hear your feedback about this podcast and in general guest ideas, klezmer songs about JFN whatever you want to send us. Write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Next time, we'll speak with Rabbi Rick Jacobs, President of the Union for Reform Judaism. How would I become involved in organized Jewish life when it had been so underinspiring to me? So I said, I don't want to be a broker of corporate Judaism. I leave you with the thought from poet Adrienne Rich: "Lying is done with words, and also with silence. So don't be silent. Keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives."